Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. This is Dr. Bill Sinyard, and I am so excited about this. We're going to start a whole new series. Uh, It's going to be a Bible study, and a very, very important Bible study. It fits, it's in sync with the passion of Gospel App Ministries. As a matter of fact, I think it's it's where we eventually run to to get our marching orders, and also Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. But I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, I want to do it as a Gospel Rant podcast first first time through and love to get your feedback. Actually, I'm I'm begging for it. And shortly after that, if if all goes well, and if I feel God's moving, I want to shape this into a small group study or studies. Not sure what to call it yet. I'll say some more about that. And we're going to go places that, frankly, most dare not go. I mean, I've preached on this. I've heard people preached on this. I've seen commentaries on this. But this is a gospel rant, right? And uh, it's it's not going to be people-pleasing. I mean, you can be troubled. That's fine. Welcome. You can disagree. You're wrong, but welcome. Only kidding. And I'm going to say a, a lot about the Sermon on the Mount that you have probably not heard. And it's all legit. It's all biblical. I'll try to prove that starting in this podcast. So, Uh, Like any rant, just listen, weigh it, study, look at the passage, uh, think and see if it has merit, argue against it. That's fine. It's a rant. We need to get the Sermon on the Mount right because it's the Sermon of Sermons, right? All scripture is inspired by God, but this is a broad collection of God actually speaking and uh, set it at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, and it has ramifications for the rest of Matthew. And I think we have been historically and biblically sloppy. I'm just saying, you you decide. Invite your friends, uh, invite people who aren't your friends, invite your enemies, find by me, tell your Bible study group, uh, missionaries you support, pastors you support, your neighbors, we're cool with that, tell your family, uh, send it out on your email list. Let's get this out. We want to add a couple hundred new listeners, particularly to this Gospel Rant on the Sermon on the Mount. And tell them you can find Gospel Rant wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen, post your link on Facebook, and thanks ahead of time. All right, let's dig right into it, because it's primarily a Bible study. We want to stick with that. The typical sermon or teaching section is generally taken from Matthew 5, where Jesus goes up on the hillside, the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and begins to teach, and then ends with the parable of the wise and foolish builder. Oh, my goodness. We have so messed that up. That's just a tease, but hang in for that one. Oh, my goodness. This will pop off the page uh, when you hear it. And that's at the end of chapter 7. So it's usually bookended from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. And that's legit. That is a section. But I think to be more correct, the larger narrative passage in Matthew extends from chapter 4, verse 23, all the way to 9, verse 35. How do we know? Well, notice the inclusio. Uh, that's obvious to Jewish scholars. An inclusio is a section of thought, think chapter or think a scroll, uh, that's bookended by an exact or similar parallel text. And in this case, Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 9.35, they're almost identical. Parts of them are absolutely identical in the Greek. They're clearly repetition. They're clearly parallel. And remember, Matthew doesn't have a Greek bone in his body. And this is how Jews told stories. And it meant something. Here's Matthew 4.23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Right? Here's 9.35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, 
preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Sound the same? Now, before we look at 423 and, and even some of the earlier verses that shape Matthew's understanding of Jesus in this collection of teaching, uh, look, we don't want to miss that larger inclusio. If we do, we risk misinterpreting the sermon collection. And I think, we, like I said, we've, we've messed it up a lot. No judgment, just saying. So first, I want to take a 10,000-foot drone flyover view and see if we can label the entire four-and-a-half larger chapter uh, section with a phrase that just might really capture its essence. I mean, if we were to write a book or or a study series, right? And it's so important because Matthew saw this as a separate section with a separate tone. Uh, it could be the title of the scroll or the or the book. And it sets the tone for the rest of Matthew. I mean, Jesus, it's the proclamation of the teachings and, and discipling in these verses that the disciples are supposed to mirror to others, to proclaim to others. And today as well, this is it. If we misunderstand what Jesus is saying in this section, we send out, we risk sending out a messed up and confusing gospel today as well. And that's, you know, the not so good news, right? So what if we call this section the kingdom gospel? I think many people do. But honestly, that's a little too religious, too pedantic sounding, out of touch. Uh, how about fingerprints of the kingdom? Okay, that's more interesting. Or God's DNA. Now, that's a little more provocative. Or uh, maybe more common, what is God really like? Or what does God like? All those things we're going to pick up. And, uh, and, and let, let me expand a little bit. This is just not a series, a section of a really good sermon or a collection of teachings about something like we so often want to portray it. It's that. But the danger is we leave it there, and it's so much more than that. Um, and those titles, potential titles, pick a lot of that up, but it, they miss something. So there's proclamation, there's teaching, but there's also expected transformation. There's also expected, and there is testimony of healing, and this healing power is roaring over and through this crowd. And we get this sense that this powerful event is penetrating hurting lives, broken identities, people who are suffering from feelings of not enoughness and disconnectedness, rejection, much like people today. Uh, this is God reaching out, pursuing and embracing outies, losers, the marginalized, those who've been treated unjustly and unfairly, uh, and they're touched and changed, right? That's the implication. We, we all expect it, and there's testimony of that by God himself. See, that makes this different than just a message about the kingdom. Are you with me? Um, and, and this is God's priority. We also see something about his strategy. Who's the, who are the priority when he starts to call people? Well, we're going to look at the, his calling of the disciples um, and in uh, a, a future or a soon future podcast. But look, this is Jesus's first church. This was the leadership team that he called together to plant his church and actually to plant his movement. Look at them. Really? I have been a church planter. No one would ever uh, try to build a church with, with this group except God. That's head-scratching. Not only are God's ways higher than ours, they're so much more confusing. All right? All right. Um, let, me, let me dig in a little bit deeper, uh, go a little bit sideways here. 
in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a little bit of a parallel, and maybe a lot, to Genesis 1. Let me read Genesis 1, 1 to 4. In the beginning, God created, and the word in the Hebrew is bara, a God that's strictly, a word that's strictly used of God, created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was hovering, was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. <clears throat> All right. So God initially creates something out of chaos, right? And the word bara, he speaks. He speaks a sentence. He speaks a teaching. He just says, "I uh, there, let it be, and it, and it is. Uh, this is his M.O., and now the Spirit of God, again, in the Sermon on the Mount on this, this rolling hill, Spirit of God enfleshed this time, has come and is once again hovering over darkness, speaking of people's lives and the, the, the community and the culture and the world and the brokenness. And he's speaking order into chaos, life into lifelessness, light into darkness again. And there's power. That's, that's what I'm trying to connect here. And, and when and where he speaks, it happens. This is the power of Jesus, uh, not only the, the wise rabbi, but Jesus, God, who, whose utterances, his very utterances create. So he proclaims, blessed be, and he's not observing that they're blessed or he's not trying to find potential. He's actually making those people presently blessed, making them feel blessed, which probably haven't felt in a long time. So they came and they were not blessed. But here in the presence of, of the rescuing, rebirthing, proclaiming, baraing God, they become blessed. They leave blessed. And I'm not, not perfect, they're not totally healed, meaning they're all going to die eventually. Right? But something has changed in their life that we are all looking for. I'm all looking for, and I want it more and more. It's part of the gospel. Not, not heaven, but a foretaste of that. And we often read this and think that Jesus just looked out and saw the potential, something like that. No, Jesus saw only helplessness and great need. He saw formlessness and void in the flesh. And he does what God has always done when he confronts formlessness and void. He speaks. He speaks life in the vacuum. And I remember my Old Testament prof half-joking that when God blesses, proclaims blessing to women in the Old Testament, they end up pregnant, meaning he creates life in lifeless wombs. This is what blessed, when he proclaims blessed, does. It's not just saying you're, you should be happy. He's saying that there's something of life given to you that you should feel. You're, you're feeling unlifed or low-lifed, and somehow something has changed uh, segmentally, right? A little bit. So when I say blessed are you or fortunate are you, people may feel good about that, right? Uh, how to win friends and influence people. But when God says it, like here in the Sermon on the Mount, people get impregnated with an alien life that they can't gen up. It's dynamite. People came oppressed, needy, and losers, and they leave as kingdom leaders and heroes. They leave as part of Jesus's launch team. <laughs> it's amazing. I, this is purpose. This is the purpose that, that we're longing for, each individual in our culture. If we read this and miss this power that's rolling out that's adhered to Jesus's word then and today. And today, when we read the words, we, we expect to one degree or another, power and lives changed, people being lifed a little or a lot. See, and if we, if we don't, we miss the banquet. We miss the dance. 
By the way, a shameless plug for our online gospel intensive, the-dance.org. Man, it, it just builds on this. So I, I invite you to that. So without that, it just becomes another good lecture, you know, like Gettysburg Address or Martin Luther's I Have a Dream, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. It's good stuff, real good stuff. But honestly, it's on a lesser tier. It's the words of humans shaping, but nevertheless, words of humans. These, when Jesus speaks, he's speaking, he's baraing again, the words of the creator God to one degree or another. He's creating. And you know, they convince too, but the big deal is that they rewire beat up brains and hearts. They begin to feel vacuously emptied souls, hurting people are healed. There's power in Jesus' teaching. His authority is recognized. Uh, you know, we, we go at this way too much with our prefrontal cortex and our midbrain is screaming for help. Uh, th- this this concoction of, of both uh, rational teaching and power actually re- re- rewires our brain a little bit. It's healing, calling, hope. It has to do with new hearts being, uh, being shaped and formed and blown on. Disciples are created. Hold on to that. We'll, we'll be looking at the calling of the disciples in a little bit. I think we've, we've misunderstood this quite a bit. Um, and uh, the Great Commission as well. When we're called to go and make disciples, what does that mean? I, th- I think we've missed that. Uh, again, we've, we, we're, we're just throwing our prefrontal cortex at it instead of uh, seeing it holistically. Okay? So when we read the verses aloud today, we, we expect that life will be created. If you're preaching on this, you should expect that lives in your congregations will be changed. If you're teaching on this, if you're reading it yourself and meditating on it, you should, honestly, the Holy Spirit speaking again into your formlessness and void to one degree or another. Try to stop it. You can't. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Man, we're going to look at that, and it's an explosion. It is an explosion. So Jesus is not saying in those words, those few words, that if you want the kingdom or you want to experience the kingdom, you just need to work hard at being poor in spirit more, <laughs> right? We've been saying that. I've heard that recently, but no, 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 stop it, uh, right? Just humble yourself lecture, along with three application steps to be poor in spirit, <laughs> so, right? Use your humble muscle, being hus- humble muscle group, whatever that is. Really? Haven't you tried that? How's that gone for you? No, God help us. Better, now that the kingdom of God has rolled out and has become enmeshed with this hillside, the people on this hillside, and is grabbing hearts and giving sight finally, people can begin to see how needy they really are. And it's okay. It's not shame. This is shame-free. It's healing. That's a good sign of, of a miraculous happening. All we need is need. And most of the time, we don't have that. We're... See, you're feeling poignant poverty in your spirit now because you see something far, far greater than you standing before you, hovering over your formlessness and void, and, and it's good, and, and it speaks. He speaks. God's lips, I've come to rescue you. Oh, how fortunate you are. And those religious leaders in Jerusalem don't get that. They're not here. They are believing a lie, and the lie is that they don't need to be rescued. They just need to work harder. Blessed be you. Um, oh, and by, now, I, I, should I get this already? Yeah. So a little bit of a teaser on the parable of the, of the wise and foolish builders. Look, the foolish builders are the religious leaders in Jerusalem, uh, the ones who are saying, 
you just need to work harder. More on that. That's a little bit of an unfair teaser. So don't think that this is just a grad class on law, a church, or theology, or humility. This is how God personally comes in power, humility, and authority. Not in a scary way at all, but in the way that God has chosen to come. He is now here on that hillside and now here in this podcast, primarily as a rescuer, a healer, a societal corrector, a pursuing lover. He's confronting bad religion. He's confronting religion. It's a big, big, big deal. And it was long expected that God would come, but not like this, right? God comes himself to be the rescuer of his chosen, his called, his elected, whatever version of that you're comfortable with. So listen to Isaiah 43, 11. See, this was known. I, even I, am God, and apart from me, there is no Savior. Hosea 13, 4. But I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except for me. And the word Savior, yeah, I think a better a better uh, translation would be rescuer. The, the Hebrew word is moshiach, a hiffle participle. It's, it's, cause, it's, some, it's something that causes someone to be rescued, to be delivered. Um, here is one commentator that says this. There is one other point to make concerning the word moshiach. Remember, this verb slash noun is written in the participle form. God is not the one who has delivered past tense. He's not the one who will deliver future tense. He is the one who is delivering. He is causing people to be set free. He is causing present tense, ongoing people to be set free from uh, where they're trapped, this present evil age. So if you had to pick... One descriptor of God, that's unfair, right? Because it just is, and we can veer into error. But if you had to pick one, particularly presented here in the Sermon on the Mount, this one might be as good as any. He is the one who causes the enslaved, the shackled, the oppressed, the beat up, the captives, those who are in chronic pain and affliction and poverty, those who can't breathe because they're being strangled by life and relationships, he causes them to be delivered, to be set free. He is a rescuer. And how important is this? Look, here in the United States, slavery has been illegal for a long time, but there still remains of people who aren't feeling that. They're feeling that they can't breathe. They're feeling like shackles remain. Look, I admit it, I'm, I'm not black, but and I can only imagine what this would feel like. But in some ways, I do feel that for different reasons. This uh, present evil age does that. Um, so it's it feels dehumanizing, right? It feels frustrating and enraging, right? But listen, uh, blacks, your deliverer is my deliverer. My deliverer is your deliverer for different reasons. But still, the one who alone can cause you to feel delivered and begin to feel delivered right now and feel more delivered is the one who is saying these things on the Sermon on the Mount for that reason. Look, you would admit Government hasn't been a, a great help to you. Uh, well, a little. That's, that's not fair. But, you know, right? Movements um, and, uh, you know, writing in racism at the end of football fields, that may be comforting. But honestly, that's not going to change a single heart, much less a community or a culture or a people. Right? But Jesus can, and his words are that powerful, and his words are targeted at ending racism, right? He's the only human being 
who wasn't racist, the only human being who wasn't racist, and he has the power to end racism, and he will. Heaven In heaven, there will be no racism, and the, that spirit indwells in Christians. So look, uh, I could say the same thing for any other class or race or nationality or sex that is being oppressed or feeling oppressed. And obviously in, in 2020 and 2021, we've been hearing more and more about that. They're coming up, they're speaking, they're, they're being giving voice. There are a lot of people who are feeling enslaved, right? So Jesus is definitely speaking to you and for you. It's his heart. It's his passion. And me too, by the way. It's, it, it, he sees the, the things that are enslaving me, that are crippling me, that are uh, treating me unjustly as well. He came to that hillside so that people like you and me who are needy can begin to feel the first pangs of freedom. This, this amazing, miraculous deliverance that only he can provide that comes with honor and fairness and justice and consolation and, and real reparation, by the way, not the political leverage that people are talking about. I get it, but it's not going to do it because no matter what they pay, you're worth far more than that. So consolation, glory, this is the, what happens when Jesus barrages on that hillside, when Jesus barrages in your soul and mine. It starts with Jesus's creative words that powerfully proclaim our worth. Blessed be, how fortunate are you, am I? And look, why? Because you've come to the hillside. You're listening to this. You're listening to the words of Jesus, not my words, and you're being exposed to his creative words unpacked. So, Honestly, the, you know, the, forget CRT. There's no power in that, really. Not like Jesus's powerful words, right? Uh, we want to change hearts and motivations, not just uh, people's prefrontal cortexes, even if it does that. It's his spirit through his words hovers over your ripped and shredded, shamed soul and identity and uh, sense of worth and creates something new and special, a little or a lot, so that you leave this hill a little more the you that you were called to be. Right? I don't have all the answers, but I can point to the power in those words. And I think we've missed that. We exegetes, we Bible teachers. How you will feel um, is different than maybe I, I will feel because we need to be rescued from maybe something different. But we should all testify that something has changed. I actually feel more valued. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That kingdom of God, well, I'm going to talk about that, but it really is the presence of God, the embrace of God, the kisses of God. So look, listen, are you stuck in bad relationships? Are you getting beat up by society? Are you stuck in the vice grips of past relationships? Are you captured by addictions? PTSD, uh, disease, depression, confusion, reputation, sadness, uh, anxiety, loneliness, not enoughness, not connectedness. The the place you should be, arms empty and open with all of your cynicism, rage, hurts, and doubts, uh, his power can come with an, the new faith that can receive. And, and so you just need to come and, and open up. All you need is need. Just put yourself in the place where you hear Jesus's word. He'll provide you with the faith to actually experience it, right? So So stop trying to believe. Ask for him to make you believe. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Boom. Is, is it resonating? Are you kind of feeling that something new is being formed or shaped or, or birthed inside of you? This is narrative dynamite. And don't just try to figure out what he was trying to say and so you can control them with your reason, your prefrontal cortex. They're so much bigger than that. Just let them wrestle, uh, you know, a World Wrestling Federation cage match with your midbrain, that critical inner voice. Just... 
you know, shut up and listen. Let it wash over you. Drip, drip, drip. Let the emotions come and push back. That's fine. Uh, in this wrestling match, my money's on the Holy Spirit because he loves you that much and he creates where there wasn't. So for now, here we go. Let's provocatively call this larger section the beginning of the Lord's last deliverance. What do you think? How does that hit you? A little bit different, right? Um, so, you know, ever heard that proposed? I don't think so. It's In some ways, it's kind of too scary. Or, or, or let me just say it in a short way. The Day of the Lord prequel. The Day of the Lord prequel. I just watched The Sopranos prequel. Uh, disappointed in it, by the way. Uh, but nevertheless, maybe it's a good way of thinking about this. It's a prequel for the final amazing coming of the Lord where I am made whole. I mean, that's looking at it from my point of view, but it, I'm looking forward to that. And it comes any and every time that these words are uttered. We should expect lives to be changed as we read and listen and speak these words. I mean, not my words, not our words, but his words, the Sermon on the Mount. So, Let's let's play with, let's kick around the Day of the Lord prequel. Um, it doesn't sound like a great book, but we'll work on it, right? And if you have any ideas, let me know. But it picks up the active, moving, and pursuing just presence of the person of God in the flesh who's moving towards the helplessly lost and marginalized and oppressed, whom now God in person is causing to be delivered. And it also picks up the unidirectional essential of the deliverance. It's God who does it. He comes upon a people who are beat. They're losing. They've lost. He doesn't come to offer assistance to people who just need help. You know, hey, God, I'm at 80%. Can you just top me off? I'll be good. Uh, This isn't just a new idea or a new weapon or new knowledge. Uh, I think of Psalm 118. I'm going to read it, but I want you to get a a feel for this is what God was doing. This is what Jesus was doing on that hillside. All right. And this is from the point of view of the people. Uh, I'll start at verse five. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting me free. The Lord is with me. There we go. Jesus is there. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Well, that's the problem. Man has been beating these people up. The Lord is with me. He is my helper. So I'll look in triumph on my enemies. Well, that's a change. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. See, all we need is need need in the Lord's rescue. Verse 9, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes, right? Than to trust in government, right? All nations have surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, right? And and the the way of the Lord, the power of the Lord, I cut them off, depending upon the Lord. I didn't do it. The Lord did it. They surrounded me on every side, meaning I'm done. But in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They swarmed around me like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my rescue, my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. Those righteous meaning those who are in relationship with God, those who God identifies with. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. Not me. The Lord's right hand has done that. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. This is... This being sent out as a disciple, once you've been rescued, go and tell other people who need to be rescued. This is the making disciples of all the nations. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. I can't open them up by my righteousness. I need God to open them up through his righteousness. 
uh, write a preview of the, of the cross. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You became my salvation, my rescue, the, the stone the builders rejected. Jesus, the one who is proclaiming all of these, he's become the capstone. Again, a preview of the cross. The Lord has done this. So who's, whose responsibility is it to rescue my soul? The Lord. And it's marvelous in our eyes. I can't explain it. This is the day the Lord has made. He's made it right, not me. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So who's rejoicing? The needy, at least those who came needy, those who were suffering defeat without hope and saving themselves, who at last miraculously depended upon the Lord because they were there. They were listening. They stopped trying to rescue themselves. They submitted to them, to themselves to the Lord for healing and to rescue them from whatever was defeating them. Are you ready for that? This is so un-American to admit, I don't just need help. I need a rescuer. Ask the Lord, the rescuer, to not only rescue, but also to make you open to being rescued. And pride gets in there, shame gets in there, and we don't control either one of those things, right? So ask God for need, and all I need is need. So to set the stage on that hillside in Galilee, there are three characters, the oppressed, the oppressors, and the ones, the one who is alone causing deliverance, right? For, for the former, from the latter. So... Put this historical vignette in a narrative category of the Exodus, uh, the flood, and the rescue by uh, through Noah. Judges, um, the rescue by God, and of course the final day of the Lord. And that frames this series of teachings differently. Am I right? Well, that's what we're going to run with. And by the way, as we go through the series, ironically, so many have historically said that the goal of the Sermon on the Mount is to embrace what the oppressors teach. And we don't say it in the, the, those words, but that's where it lands too too often. And you'll see what I mean, just a tease. We we just, in, in laziness, we actually give voice to the oppressors versus the rescuer. Just a tease. All right, so who knew? Listen, at this point, if you're desperate enough to sit down helpless again and willing to admit it or willing to ask for need— and you're willing to sit down and rub shoulders without social distancing with the miserable at the foot of that sloping hillside in Galilee, ready to publicly say with the hymnist, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. If, if so, you should expect change. Life. Not, not just... God seeing your potential, but uh, actual change that you can testify to. A little hope, uh, honor, being adored, feeling purposed, uh, and all that is meant by following him. Again, not just prefrontal cortex, you. So, and as I think about these messages, here are some reactions that I, th I was expecting that I think would be reasonable. OMG, we got this one wrong, or... Oh my, look at that, a final shot across the bow to the religious. Uh, this is the dangers of being righteous. This is the one essential element of discipleship that anyone can do. Uh, how about this one? Wake up evangelicalisms. The millennials are right, at least about this thing. Or like I like this, at last, the beginning of the end of Israel's exile. <clears throat> Interesting. Or here is what the first century church really looks like. And by the way, who would want to join it? Or 
How about thinking of Jesus on 60 Minutes, where they ask, so Rabbi, in your own words, what would you like to be remembered by? What would you call a success if you accomplished? How will you be remembered? How would your detractors respond? And listen to Jesus's response. Or, oh, now we can see the chasm between God coming on the one hand and Mount Sinai or the Temple Mount or any other religion on the other hand meaning there's a contrast we'll present. Or headline in Jerusalem Post, we got God wrong. Rabbis blame the decline of leadership. Priests blame the younger generation, secularization, and the lack of enthusiasm around worship. Rome yawns. (laughs) A little long for a headline, but I like it anyway. Look, if you're interested in plunging in, welcome. Dig deeper before the, the next podcast. Go back and read the section on the temptation of Jesus and the calling of the disciples, and of course, uh, 423, and and just identify. And we're going to look at some of these next time. What did Jesus model for us in the temptation? What strikes you about the disciples' response to Jesus' invite? And again, relate that to Genesis 1. What do you make of that? In 423, who was interested in Jesus and why? What what did they have in common? Because they didn't have a lot in common. And here's the real teaser. Why didn't they go to Jerusalem instead? Love to hear your actual response. Don't keep it to yourself. Bill at gospel-app.com. Check out the online intensives on the website. That's the dance and the forgiving path. Uh, the website is gospel-app.com. And remember, invite, pass this out. Uh, we want to get a couple of hundred more listeners. Until next time, take heart, child of God. In a world where relationships are easily broken and often discarded, the Rebuilding Us Marriage Podcast is your lighthouse, guiding the way to hope, restoration, and transformation in Christ. I'm your host and marriage coach, Dana Shea. Join me as we discuss the necessary tools for rebuilding marriages from adversity, betrayal, and disconnection. It's time to reignite love as we rebuild marriages from the ground up. Listen to the Rebuilding Us Marriage podcast on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.